We continue our, our study this morning in the letter of James, and I'm going to ask you to stand now as we read and honor God's Word to us. So we are in James chapter 4. We're going to finish the last few verses of chapter 4 this morning, verses 10 through 17. James writes, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, simply put this morning, we pray that you would meet us in your word. God, we pray that you would help us to know ourselves, but most importantly, we pray you would help us to know you, that this next few minutes together would be a deep means of your grace in our lives. And we pray, even as it was James's purpose, that you would change us through James's words. We pray most of all that you would change us by the word who has been made flesh, your son Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. So last week, if you've been with us, if you haven't, it's okay. If you don't remember anything, it's okay too, okay? I won't take offense to that. But last week we stopped in verse 10, and in verse 10 really is the starting line for us this morning. I'm going to read it again so you just feel the weight of it. James writes, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This really is a climactic statement in James's counsel to us in his letter. Been asking the question, how do we change? How is it that, um, that God works more and more grace into our hearts and in our lives? Uh, how do we mature? How do we grow up? And James says it's through humility. Humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord. So what does that look like in practice? What does it look like to live in humility? That's the, that's the journey that James wants to take us on this morning. And he's going to lead us on that journey by bringing into sharper focus the great enemy of humility. What is the great enemy of humility? Well, in verse 16, James calls it arrogance. It goes by a lot of different names. Um, we often refer to it as pride. You should know in our tradition as Christians, it's been around for a long time now, for the ancients, especially in our tradition, Pride was much more than just a vice among other vices. Pride was seen, in fact, as the chief vice that was at the center of all evil. Speaking on their behalf, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He writes, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, they are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. 
Pride leads to every other vice. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Lewis is saying that, that, that pride is the mind that says to God, not I hate you. Pride is the mind that says to God, I don't care whether you exist or not. I don't need you. I am sufficient in myself for all that I need. If you wanted to take James's words, we could just flip the definition of humility in verse 10 and call pride what it is very simply. Pride is the exaltation of self. Okay? You know that. Pride is self-exaltation. And James's goal for us this morning is really just to show us how pride, how self-exaltation begins to show up in our lives. You say, why is this important? I mean, I already know that I struggle with pride, and I certainly know a lot of other people who do as well. And they are the worst, aren't they? I mean, seriously, they're the worst. Why is it important to spend time thinking about something that already, we already assume together, and that's that we need help with pride? Well, here's the reason I think. There really are two ways that we tend to treat sin superficially. Two ways that we give a nod to sin, but really fail to address it in our lives. On the one hand, we can treat sin purely at the behavioral level, right? That's what James was talking about last week, if you were here last week. So, for example, we can say, you know, I shouldn't have used those words, but she just brings it out in me. Um, I just need to tone down my rhetoric a little bit. Or we could say, you know, I should have never clicked on that image, but, uh, well... This is kind of the world we live in. I need a better filter on my computer. You know, there's probably a lot of truth to both of those things, but from last week, if you remember, James says to you and he says to me, if if we're going to change, we have to go deeper than that. We have to trace our behaviors back into our chaotic desires and see that we cling to those desires in the place of God. And not only that, but we have to see that those are the very places in the depths of our own soul and heart that God gives more grace. Those are the places that God zealously craves you. The places where he calls us to put down our weapons. So one way that we treat sin superficially is that we just never, we never do that. We never tread the path from what we do to to our desires. We never tread the path from, in fact, our behaviors to our heart. We skim along the surface of the obvious and never get to the source. But the second way that we treat sin superficially is, I think, perhaps more subtle, okay, and more dangerous because it it doesn't sound very superficial at all. It's that we learn to traffic in the language of the deeper stuff, okay? We learn to talk about these big concepts like shame and idolatry and lust and pride all big and all important words, but we only become generalists about them. That is, we never bother to know how those big words come to concrete expressions in our actual daily lives. In the Screwtape Letters, it's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote about, it's a fantasy book a little bit, about uh, one demon who's an older demon, who is an expert demon, he's training a younger demon on how to ruin the spiritual life of a Christian. And the expert demon says this to the younger demon. He says, look, you got to bring him to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour 
without discovering any of those facts about himself which are perfectly clear to anyone who has ever lived in the same house with him or worked in the same office. In other words, keep his mind on the inner life so that he never really sees what a jerk he is to other people. Keep her trafficking in the language of the heart so that she never discovers how her gossip and her superiority or her materialism is playing out in her relationships. You see that? So on the one hand, the danger is that we only skim, that we never go from our behaviors to our hearts. But on the other hand, the other danger is that we only become generalists and we never go back from the heart to our actual behaviors. And James is going to do this for us along his letter. He wants us to bounce back and forth because his point is that in order to really change, that path needs to be well-tread in your own life. You have to be able to go from your behaviors to your heart, but also back from your heart to your behaviors. And that is, in fact, what James is doing for us this morning. He's saying to you where you sit, it is not enough to assume your pride. It's not enough to say it. You cannot be a generalist about your pride. You need to see how it surfaces in your life so that you can ask for the grace of God to meet you in those particular ways. Okay? We're going to walk down this path with James with three questions this morning. The first question is this. How is it that pride shows up? How how does it surface? Where can I see it? Secondly, how is it that God begins to undo my pride? How How do we attack it? How does humility show up in the place of pride? And then finally this morning, briefly, I just want you to see what difference it can make in your life. I want you to leave here with a very compelling vision for humility. All right? Number one, how does pride show up? Well, pride, you can guess, probably shows up in many ways. But in this brief letter, James wants to draw our attention to two this morning. And I just want you to notice something. I want you to notice when James speaks, he's writing 2,000 years ago. Now, wouldn't you say that a lot has changed, okay, from where they were sitting in church 2,000 years ago? A lot has changed, right? First century Middle East compared to how you got the church this morning compared to where you are in Dallas, Texas, compared to the the arrangement of your own life, wouldn't you say that a lot has changed materially and culturally and technologically? And yet you're going to read James's words and you're going to, there's not much that's changed in us. I mean, there's not much that's changed in the human heart. (laughs) So James wants to show us how pride surfaces and they're, they're very easy to connect with us this morning. Two ways. In verses 11, 12, James points to pride surfacing in our judgments of other people. In our judgments of other people. In verses 13 through 17, he points to, not going to like this one, he points to our planning for the future, for all you planners out there. Okay? Our judgments of other people and our planning for the future. Do you ever criticize? Do we criticize? When we make plans, do we do we feel entitled to how those plans will work out? Well, James says that is pride blossoming, surfacing in our lives. Let's take those in turn for a moment. First, our judgments of others. Look at me again at verse 11. 
James in verse 11 writes the following. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and by extension sisters. So the question is, what, is, what does James mean by evil here? And you might guess, well, I, you know, well, certainly maybe he means we shouldn't lie to one another or about one another. So he's, he's saying that evil is rumors and uh, half-truths and accusations, slander. And that's certainly a good start, but in the context, what James is talking about is much more than that. Because remember, it's not a breach of truth that James is addressing. It is a breach of humility. So the evil that James is addressing is anything that would shame or dishonor or denigrate or put down your neighbor, even in the name of truth. And you say, well, look, I don't, I don't know that I do that. I don't know that I'm a, I don't feel like I judge my neighbor. How do you feel when you walk into a Walmart? When someone around you fails, how do you process their failure? How do you talk about people or talk with people about other people with whom you don't agree politically? You can say, well, what's so wrong with that? Well, James is just saying, look, I just want you to see something. When you put down your neighbor, even in your heart, when you assume to be above them, what you're doing inadvertently even maybe is you are setting yourself up as judge in place of the only one who has a right to hold a gavel, God himself. In many ways, James is alluding to the parable of the Good Samaritan here, and you've probably heard that parable before, even if you've never been in church. It's the, the most famous parable in the New Testament, okay? And what we learn in the parable of the Good Semester is that, is that our relationship with our neighbor is to be one of standing next to our neighbor in love, not over our neighbor in judgment. And James is echoing the same thing, and he's looking at us this morning, and he's saying, look, you have no gavel by right. You do have a calling by grace. And that calling is to love your neighbor, and the only way that you can love your neighbor well, the only way, is through humility. Pride will surface in the way that you judge other people. Number two, pride surfaces in the way that we plan for the future. Look at verse 14 with me. There James writes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, we'll spend a year there and we'll trade and make a profit. And he says, you don't know what tomorrow brings. And I know some of you are nervous right now. Your worst fear is losing your calendar, okay? Uh, and, and maybe you're nervous that I'm going to say that planning's wrong or planning's bad, and that's not what James is getting at at all. Um, what James is doing is he's picking out a very normal activity, an activity even that the Bible commends in the Proverbs. You know, Jesus commands planning himself when he, he looks at people and says, look, you want to follow me? You better count the cost first. You better plan to know what it will cost you. So planning by itself isn't bad. He's saying, though, that you can find pride in the way that you think about your plans. And this is how. Look at me at verse 15. Verse 15, James says, look, instead of saying we will do something or I will do something, James says that you should say instead, if God wills, then I will do it. Now, that doesn't sound like much, does it? It sounds like just a matter of words. Well, if I just sort of tack this preface on, does that sort of excuse me, right? Recuse me of everything. 
And that's what, not what James is doing here. James is not talking about your words. He's talking about the attitude that we exert over our futures. He's not talking about planning per se. What he's saying is that we often feel entitled to the things that we write down on paper. We feel entitled to the things that we put on our own calendars. And look, here's just a test on a really small scale, okay? Do you believe when you leave here this afternoon in about an hour, just kidding. (laughs) See, that's the test. You are all angry, that's the test. Do you believe, do you believe when you leave here this afternoon that your time is your own? Do you believe that you'll wake up the next morning and that you begin every morning as the lawful possessor of 24 hours? And if an interruption comes into your life that you don't account for, that it's your time that is being stolen away. It's your time. Now, I feel that all the time. But there is some irony here, isn't it? The fact that we call it my time, and think about it just for a moment, you can neither make nor retain one moment of time. You can't make it or retain it. Time is something that we receive purely as gift, and yet we've gotten it confused that somehow time belongs to us, that it is ours by right. And so we say things without thinking about it, right? We say, you know, it's my time or those are my plans. So ingrained in us that we don't even think about it until James brings it up before us this morning. He presents it to us and says, friends, that's pride. That's self-exaltation. That is an anti-God state of mind that appears in a normal activity in your daily life that we need to ask the Lord's grace to undo for us. How did those two paragraphs fit together? I'll tell you how they put together. James is saying, look, we make ourselves judges and owners of things that aren't ours to judge and ours to own. But we set ourselves up that way. And he says, so what we need is the grace of God to undo our self-delusions, our delusions of self-exaltation. And that's the next thing he wants to get to for us this morning. How can that be done? How is it that we begin to see our pride undone? How is it that our egos begin to sort of assume their proper place in God's world? This can be a little tricky, especially with James' words here, so I want you to see this. On the one hand, you can read James here, very easy to read him, and make this conclusion. The key to humility is to shave yourself down. The key to to humility is to keep blasting away at your own sense of superiority. The key to humility is just to keep shaving, shaving, shaving. So here's what I mean. Look at verse 12 with me. I want you to see James do this for you this morning. Verse 12, he says, look, there's only one lawgiver and judge. And of course, he means that you're supposed to assume that that's not you, right? There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. And then what does he say next? He says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, when you read that, you need to read that with attitude. That's what he's doing. James is looking at us through his letter and saying, but who are you? Like, who do you think you are? Who made you the boss of everybody? Who appointed you as, who are you? And what James is doing right there is he's confronting us with our weakness. And he's shaving us down. And he wants us to see that we don't belong where we think we belong. Okay? 
Who are you? Who do you think you are? Now look at how he does it in regard to our futures in verse 14. He says there, what is your life? For you are like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Once again, James is saying, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Who are you? And in both places, James is saying, look, you're prideful. And here's, here's how we're going to at least start the conversation. We're going to confront ourselves with our weakness and say together, we're not that much. We're not that much. Right? And so it would be very easy to stop there and to assume that the key to humility really is the appraising and reappraising of ourselves, the whittling down of ourselves until we get our egos just right. But there's more here in the letter for us. James doesn't want us to stop there. He wants us to go somewhere else. And the somewhere else, friends, is the key to undoing pride in our own hearts. Look at me again at verse 15. There James writes this. Instead, he says, you ought to say, oh my goodness, I'm a mist. Lord, help me. He didn't say that, does he? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or we will do that. In other words, the transition that we have to make is not to just shave ourselves down by the force of our own will. What James is saying is that you and I have to make the leap to entrusting ourselves to the will of another. We have to make the leap of entrusting ourselves to the will of God. If the Lord wills, if the Lord is willing, what James is saying is that the willingness of God, the will of God, is the place where your ego can find a home, but nowhere else. And I want to tell you why this is so important. I want to do so from the mouth of someone who has felt herself shaven down, who has felt herself weak, and yet found no rest in trying to build herself back up. This is from an interview that Madonna did with Vanity Fair about 30 years ago. Okay? If that makes anyone else feel old, it makes me feel old. She, she says this in the interview. She says, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I am always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that. Again and again, she says, my life, my drive in life is from this horrible feeling of being mediocre. Ever felt that before? My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And it's always pushing me. Pushing me because even though I become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle, she says, has never ended, and it probably never will. Okay, so whatever you think of Madonna, this is incredibly honest and incredibly perceptive. What is she saying? She's saying, I, I've felt that I'm weak. I have felt that I am a mist. I have felt the weight of the reality that I am mediocre and uninteresting. And here's what I can do about it. I can deceive myself for a little while with my will, with my iron will. But even my iron will is insufficient to make a home for my identity. Though I am exalted by the world's standards, my will cannot bear the weight of my ego. 
This is really important. (laughs) Because it means that pride cannot be undone by shaving yourself down little by little. All that eventually yields is a new form of pride called self-loathing, insecurity. Pride, the gospel says, is ultimately undone only in one way, and that is by handing yourself over entirely to the will of another so that you no longer have to think about yourself at all. And what James says this morning in verse 15 is that the God of the universe is willing to have you. The God of the universe is willing to have you. If the Lord wills, well, how willing is God? Listen to the words of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What is Isaiah saying? Isaiah is saying it is the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. To take away from you your guilt and your pride and your distance and your rebellion. That it would never be held against you. And now, in the hand of Jesus who is crushed for you, the will of God is to prosper you as his own son or daughter. Isaiah is saying not only is God willing to have you, God was willing to be crushed for you to prosper you as a son or a daughter. Listen to me this morning. And in the will of God, you have nothing left to prove. There's nothing left for you to prove. The real question for us this morning is not how do we speak to ourselves, how do we shave ourselves down, it's it's what the gospel always asks us. It's can we entrust ourselves to the will of a God who loves us? Can we entrust ourselves to his judgments? Can we entrust ourselves to his timing? Can we entrust ourselves to his provision? Certainly not easy, but that's how pride is undone, not by shaving ourselves down, but by giving ourselves over entirely to the God who has loved us and has been crushed for us and who intends to prosper us as his family. Now, what difference does it all make? I want you to leave here with a vision of what difference it might make in your life. What does it matter? What does it look like if God were to change me? What does it look like if humility were really showing up in my life? I want you to listen this morning as we close to how C.S. Lewis closes out his great chapter in Mere Christianity on Pride. And I realize that I've given you a heavy dose of C.S. Lewis this morning. That's not normal. Some of you wonder if I wrote anything myself. So that's fair. I would say, if you get an opportunity, the book's Mere Christianity, to read this particular chapter, it will be well worth your time. Here's what he writes. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be the sort of person who is always telling you he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful and intelligent person who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you felt a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility because he will not be thinking about himself at all. See, that's how humility shows up. This is how you know it in your own life. It shows up not by appraising and reappraising and making sure that you can get your ego just right 
not feeling too high or too low. Humility shows up in that you quit thinking about yourself at all. Humility shows up as self-forgetfulness. It shows up as the capacity to look at your neighbor and to love him or her in the present moment, to give them and the world that God has created your attention. And I just ask you as we leave this morning, have you ever been around someone like that? You've been around someone who made you feel like you were so unbelievably important. They were hanging on your words. You've been around someone that was in the presence so fully and that that was committed to your presence in it. She wasn't consumed with comparisons or criticisms. She wasn't consumed with what the future may or may not hold. She had the space, the energy, the freedom to be consumed with loving you. That's the difference that humility makes. Humility sets us free from perhaps the most powerful prison that any of us have ever known. The prison of self-occupation. And God sets us free from that prison to actually go out and fully enjoy the world that he's made and to fully love those that we find in it. If the Lord wills, entrust yourself to the will of God. Entrust yourself to the, the one who is willing to be crushed for you. Entrust yourself to his judgments, to his timing. Entrust yourself to his provision. And by God's grace, he will change you. And God will give you the freedom of not thinking about yourself at all so that you can go into the world and love others well. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word to us this morning through your your servant James. Uh, We pray, Father, that um, uh, that you would do, you would have your way with us, that you would find in us receptive hearts, O God, and that even now it is imperative for us to know that to become more humble is beyond us. It would just cause more, um, more self-delusion, more self-occupation. And so we pray by grace that you would do it, that you would give us the freedom of forgetting about ourselves, that we might love you and love others. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.